Stories, fables, ghostly tales. Welcome, you little lovelies. Today I bring you three creepy tales. Devil's Wood, a tale of insanity, manipulation, and childhood daring. Her protection, a ritual of the utmost secrecy to bring upon you legal invisibility. And lastly, Out with a Bang by Myth, where childhood antics lead to unprecedented childhood trauma in a way you'd never expect. Now, my lovelies, before we begin, I want to thank my own night tea titans, and today I'll bring some darker tones to our tales. Matthew J. Bower, House of Rust. Amongst the houses in the small town of Trout rests one forlorn building of orange and oaken build. Stories about this house known only to those that live in the area crop up every now and then. People going missing, screaming coming from its oaken halls. But listeners, I know the truth. And so do the people of Trout. The house lives and the house consumes. The authorities don't dare go near and corner off the perimeter from visitors and tourists. But every now and then, the web the House of Rust waits in catches its flies, devouring its victims finger by finger, limb by limb, in an empty house where only darkness lives within. Slowly they fall to their slumber, and little do they know, the House of Orange Rust begins to eat so very, very slow. Maya, the Sobbing Tree out in the woods of Evering Glade lies a tree that has earned itself a very unique name. The sobbing tree is one whose name isn't earned by the sound it makes, but rather the way the tree's leaves behave and the structure of the tree itself. This tree oozes droplets from its leaves, giving it the appearance that it weeps at night and is pitted with holes to carry the voice of the wind. Little else is known about this tree other than its species carries with it a dire warning to stay away as it sobs throughout the night. One touch of its droplets will cause a person to hallucinate, and the wind that carries through it at night sings to its victim. Once lured, the person falls into the center of the tree to only drown, and feed the tree once more. It is said the tree sobs, for the horrors it brings to this world. Solstra, Ritual of Thought A church in Gloverhusk has been abandoned for many, many years. What lies there, underneath the rubble, is a hidden sanctuary that leads to the cult of thought. This cult practices not murder, not chaos, but thought manipulation, the power of focused and tailored intentions honed by a mystical deity they call trust. They sacrifice one thing and only one thing during their servitude to the queen of trust, and that is their freedom to think. Every aspect of their lives are controlled by Queen Trust, and she lives within them, wandering forests, harvesting plants, and feasting on animals. Should you ever wander into the crumbling spires of Gloverhusk, watch carefully for their eyes. You'll spot them. They smolder with mist, like two blue orbs of pearly fire, and walk away from the mysteries within that place. Mates, I hope you enjoyed your tales. I tried to bring out some more unique tales and marry them to the theme of today. Imagination, thought, rituals, and madness. Thank you, lovelies, 
for your amazing level of support that you bring to this podcast. Again, more new music thanks to you lovelies. My white tea warlords, I own cows, tree of lies. Back in the day as kids, we used to play the game Oopsie Cowsie. The rules begin with you having two other friends join you. One is the cow, one is the rider, and the other is the cattle herder. This was a game that saw friends create memories, traveling around the wheat fields and into nearby forests. But it wasn't until a game of Oopsie Cowsie brought a trio of children upon the tree of lies that saw this game banned in the countryside. This exploration forced them into the moor of a tree whose weeds grow and flex, appearing at first like any other tree. But unknown to them, they've met with the tree of lies. And as the trio jump, skip, and bounce over its limbs, not seeing them rise into the air and slowly poise to strike, their fates were sealed before they knew it. One child escaped, whilst the other two were pulled into the heart of the tree to be slowly devoured. Oopsie Cowsie is a children game no more, and a warning message from a time gone by. Lee Bauer, to rule a path. A path leads from the glass parks and past the farmer's fields of glass glades. A path that is cursed and brings with it a burden that strikes at a person's soul without their knowledge. Taking to rule a path knowingly or unknowingly is unusual in that once you start walking, you're compelled to find its end. Other pathways are open to you and they lead to lands and places you are simply sure could not exist. A town made of grass, a city that folds as you walk by it, and at no point does the path of Tarula bring you closer to its end. One new place after the other, the path pulls you along. The only escape is to look back and fight an ancient curse whose willpower is to bring you back on that road of wonders. Some have returned, but many have not. And for any of those that have, whisper Tarula in their sleep. Or are found to go missing entirely weeks after. I hope both of you enjoyed your tales. Something more sinister and something definitely different, I hope. Thank you both for being so awesome and supporting the podcast. And now, for my Earl Grain forces, Chad Warren, Joss Heather, Lorraine Crisanto, Paige Marcini, Peter Raffelli, Tasha Moncrief, Christina Boyd, and Divided by Zero. Thank all of you for being amazing and being the jet fuel in this podcast engines. I am very lucky to have all of you. If you want to support the podcast like these legendary listeners, visit www.patreon.com forward slash sfgt. And there, you'll see a whole bunch of different rewards for your support. And you're helping a podcast stay completely ad-free and improve every single day. Now turn off the lights, turn up the sound, and get ready for a set of tales like no other. Devil's Wood The wood was appropriately named Devil's Wood. I'm not sure what the official name was, but the local teenagers called it that to scare us younger ones. And it worked. Because a lot of strange things happened in that place. So, as with all places like that, there were rumours and legends and whatnot that went around there. One of the favourites was the old tale of the gypsies 
who were meant to live in the clearing at the back, which is the narrow end you can see in the picture. Apparently, a few gypsies set up camp there, and as all witches and gypsies do in stories, they like to kill children. One of the utmost dares you could get when we played dares was to go to the back of the woods by yourself, touch the last tree you could, and then return. I had to do this twice, and both times, strange things happened. The trail to the back of the woods was a strange one. It zigzagged from side to side, taking really difficult routes, and several times the ground rose up in huge humps that were murder to navigate if you were on a bike. It would naturally get darker and darker as you progressed, even though sometimes the trail would take you very close to the edge, it always stayed dark. The first time I went to the back of the woods, it would be as a kid who was just dead. I was going to do it, and I was going to take my time doing it too, to show all the other older ones how scared I wasn't. Now, this sounds cliché, but I always say clichés only become clichés because they're true. The deeper you got into the woods, the stronger the feeling of dread you felt. It was deeply unnerving, but as a child's pride is a lot stronger than fear. I pressed on. I reached the last turn before the clearing and paused. I could have sworn I could hear something in the clearing at the back, and suddenly... The previously ridiculous stories of evil gypsies came flooding back to me. I crept up to the corner and peered out, and I think that was the first time in my young life that I ever truly shat bricks. There was an old caravan there, a small one, because they would have to have towed it over the farmer's field, but a caravan nonetheless. Well, that first time, I didn't take too long to look at it. I was terrified that they were in there waiting. It didn't occur to me that the caravan was in a serious state of decay. I turned and I ran, faster than ever. And fuck the trail, I just ran a straight line through the trees, the whole way swearing footsteps thudded behind me. I tried to tell everyone when I got out, but I know they thought I was just taking the piss. I guess it just looked like I'd gotten scared, ran out and tried to make up a story to disguise my fear. However, I kept on and on about it, and eventually my friend Connor had enough of my rambling and told me if I was so sure, we'd go back in there again, and I could show him. Just a note you need to know about Connor. He was fucking insane. I'm not joking. He had no fear whatsoever, and basically, any trouble in the neighborhood, you could bet your bottom dollar it was him. I usually got dragged along under the I know stuff on you boyo card. So me and Connor set off just after lunch. We were around eight, I think. Bold as brass. Strutting into the woods like he owned them. I was a lot more timid. Still terrified that gypsies lurked behind the trees waiting for us. I think Connor thought I was making it up. But sure enough, when we reached the clearing, there it was in all its battered glory. See? I remember shouting triumphantly, before I realized I could just be drawing attention to us. Before I had the chance to persuade Connor to run like fuck, he had walked right over to it, 
and pressed his face against it. You idiot! He told me. It's not lived in! Before I could stop him, he had pulled open the old door, which nearly fell right off, and went inside. As you can imagine, the inside of the small caravan wasn't really that interesting. Old leaves on the floor, mud scuffs. If anything of value had been left in there, it had been stolen. It took Connor about five minutes to get bored of it and hop out. And let me tell you, I was glad. To try and disguise a little of my fear, I took a walk around the back of it. The very back of the clearing was full of thorns and closely knit bushes, so it was basically a dead end. However, there was a distinct hole in the thorny bushes, and I peered closer to find that loads of old junk had been thrown in there. There were old sleeping bags, empty packets of food, water and alcohol, some old magazines destroyed by rain, just useless stuff like that. However, one thing leaped out at me as being kind of strange. It was an army jacket. Not the type you can buy in shops, but a genuine army jacket with regiment badges. The only thing missing was the Velcro surname slip, which had been ripped off. Of course, there being an army base close by, Connor wasn't that disturbed. However, I had seen the soldiers often, and they were certainly a proud bunch. I couldn't imagine any of them getting rid of their uniform, or deserting, or anything like that. Connor was obviously bored now and was taking the piss out of me for my epic escape from the forest. I was getting fucked off to say the least, and just as I was about to tell him to shut up, something caught my eye in the undergrowth close to the clearing. I only saw it for a split second, but I could have sworn it was a man watching us. He was crouched in the undergrowth, and seemed to be tattered and dirty in appearance, stockly built but otherwise not really that remarkable. My breath caught, as it sometimes does when you see something that shocks you, and I wheeled around to see if Connor had seen it. To my relief, he had, and to my secret delight, he finally looked unnerved. Did you see that? He asked me, and I nodded. We decided to climb down the ditch to the right of us and go through the farmer's field rather than through the forest, as it was a lot safer in our eyes to risk getting chased by an R8 farmer. As we walked on the thin strip of land between crop and ditch, we kept silent, eyes on the ground wondering what we had just seen. We began to notice the empty packets at the same time, old crisp packets, chocolate bar wrappers, the kind of stuff army guys are given when they go on training missions. High sugar, high energy things to keep them going in case of an emergency or stranding. At one point, we spotted an old, thick green sock just lying there. And we were seriously starting to wonder what was going on. I had made a vow to myself to leave that damn place alone now. For the next few days, I kept my promise. There was a weird tree standing away from the woods that had been disfigured one night after being struck by lightning. If you climbed the trunk, you could sit in the large hole the two separated trunk halves had made quite comfortably. There was room for several of us, but I sat there alone, while everyone else went exploring in that forest. Shortly after seeing the strange man in the back of the forest, weird things started happening in other parts of the neighborhood, which was originally blamed on foxes. You know, bins tipped over and hunted through 
claw marks in doors and eventually small animals like rabbits mauled or killed, found half-eaten. However, things quickly took a sinister turn when none other than Connor had the sheer shit frightened out of him. I wasn't actually there when it happened, but it was the talk of everyone the next day. Apparently, the idiot had decided to accept the dare to go in there after dark and had been attacked. It was legit because the police were called. I had to return home when I went out to see him as the police were arriving outside the house. And when I finally saw him, he had some impressive looking scratch marks down his arms. He was of course shaken, and it was strange to not see him showing off his war wounds. The story eventually trickled out. Connor had been attacked, presumably by the same man who had seen. A search was launched and the woods were placed out of bounds, and eventually the police found him. This man was obviously not right in the head. He had fled from the army complaining that they were conspiring against him. He seemed to think he was some sort of secret weapon, and he had to flee and find his own way in the wilderness, so he couldn't be used as the main weapon in any other wars. I think everyone had a hard time imagining this man ripping rabbits to bits with his bare teeth and scavenging through bins, like some wild or stray animal. But of course, it had been him all along. And all because he was convinced that the army were out to use him as their ultimate killing machine. He seemed to believe he possessed unnatural powers. When the police found him, his fingernails were all ripped to shit. I'm not sure if it's true, but apparently fragments of fingernails were found in the gouged doors and the same jagged gashes were found on Connor's arms. Naturally, in such a small rural area, the newspapers and local news had a field day and stalked the story so much that they eventually obtained enough information to attract the attention of the national news. They uncovered several strange things about the man. He had some really freaky beliefs, aside from the whole, I'm a secret weapon one. Devil's Wood was incredibly close to the army base. If he really wanted to run from them, why choose a place so close? Well, it turned out that he had also heard of the gypsies and believed that their magic could help him. I always thought it was kind of strange that a fully grown man would believe what was essentially a kid story. However, I had taken into account the fact that the caravan remained there, and it certainly wasn't his. The police of course returned to the woods, trying to find out if the man's ramblings had any truth to them, and to discover who owned the caravan. They found the clearing empty of any caravan or junk, and fresh tire marks leading along one side of the farmer's field, turning into muddy tire tracks on the road and eventually vanishing. No leads were ever found and they eventually had to give up on that part of the case. This strange ex-soldier still kept up his tales of how they helped hide him, how they helped him discover more of his powers, and how they performed all these strange rituals. The most interesting part of it all was that for one such power-discovering ritual, they needed a young child. Connor didn't realize exactly what an escape he had. His parents shielded him from most of the information. They moved away shortly after. Like I said at the beginning, this is just an old story from my childhood that I always thought was rather interesting. 
At least I've gotten it out there now, though. Her Protection In every major town and city, there is a house where no official record exists, and whose windows have been boarded up for longer than anyone around can remember. The previous occupants, if there ever were any, are untraceable, and no organization or individual will ever lay claim to the plot on which it stands. Nevertheless, when you break in, always through a back, ground floor window, you must never touch the outer doors. You'll see amongst the dust the signs of inhabitants long gone, a flattened cardboard box, an overturned child's cot, balding patches on the carpet where the pile has been worn away. Invariably, there will be an orphaned double mattress in the master bedroom. What you will not see, however, are rats and cockroaches or animal waste. Vermin know better than to come here. These are her sacred spaces. The first time you visit, bring only what you need to help you into the house. Then locate the master bedroom. Stand in the center and draw an unbroken circle in the dust around your feet. Make it about a meter in diameter to be safe. Face the doorway and say aloud, I, I wish, wish to make, make a sacrifice. sacrifice. Will you, you welcome, welcome the offering? Then leave as quickly as possible. You must not return until night has next fallen. This time, bring nails, a hammer, an empty liter bottle, a sharp, sturdy knife, and a torch. Enter the same way you did last time. Remember the mattress in the master bedroom? Someone will be sleeping there. Don't worry about waking them up. She has taken care of that for you. Turn the sleeper over onto their back and cut their juggler vein. Make sure to collect as much blood as you can. You will need to pour a little of the blood onto the floor of every room, including this one. Make sure you have some left at the end. When you're finished, leave by the same way you entered, and close up the boards again. This is what the hammer and nails are for. Walk home. Speak to nobody on your way. When you get there, Tip some of the remaining blood into your right hand and smear it over your door handle before you enter. Then, go to bed. If there is any blood left, you must pour the rest of it onto any pavement in the city. But do not allow it to be poured down a drain. The knife you must never use again and should bury. Do not trouble yourself with covering your tracks. When you next leave your house, the blood on your door will be gone and the murder you have committed will have no repercussions. From the moment you leave her temple, DNA evidence will never again implicate you. Law enforcement will creep around your footsteps without touching them. On cameras, your face will show up as a blur. You are under her protection now. Just make sure you get the right house. Out with a bang. I've decided to kill myself. I think it's important someone understands why. 
so I'm making this video before I blow my head off. The first time I remember it happening, I was nine. Johnny Weller and I were playing in his backyard. The sun was setting over his back fence, warm oranges and reds shining through the bone white slats like a creamsicle against pearly white teeth. Johnny was the cowboy and I was a Native American Indian, stealing his horse. We ran around the swing set, him laughing and me whooping and threatening to scalp him. When he tripped, I ran to where he laid in the dirt, scooping up a handful of air, pointing my finger at his nose, and proclaimed, I got your gun now! Bang! Johnny's head exploded in a tremendous blossom of crimson blood, slate grey brain and chips of skull that sparkled in the setting sun. My hand fell to my side, and I stared, open-mouthed, unable to understand what just happened. Someone was screaming. At first I thought it must be Johnny's mother, until she tore open the back door and I realized I was the one screaming. Johnny's mother crumpled against her son's headless body, adding her broken sobs to my horrified cries. Johnny's funeral was the next week. Closed casket. I forgot the sparkling light shimmering across the cloud of Johnny's blood. I forgot Johnny's mother ragdolling my little body, begging me to tell me what happened to her son. I forgot the sheriff telling my mother Johnny was hit by a falling bullet, one of 26 cases each year. I forgot my father's quiet talks with my mother about how they never found the round that spattered Johnny's smile across the grass. I adjusted. I coped. I forgot. I didn't forget the next time it happened. I never played cowboys and Indians again. In fact, I can't remember a single instance of any shooting game played by little boys anywhere in my childhood. I do remember the little girl in the park pop pop popping her little nerf balls as she bounced around. She ran up to me, brandishing the weapon and shouting, Hands up! I smiled and complied, dropping my sandwich in mock terror. I lifted my hands to the sky and petitioned for mercy, a true homicidal maniac in the making. She executed me with a flurry of staccato pop pop pops. I dutifully played dead, sprawling across my bench. She giggled and proclaimed, Your turn! Shoot me! A sudden sensation of intense discomfort slithered up my spine. I thought of flowers. Glittering crimson roses, wet with morning dew. She eyed me impatiently, apparently convinced she might have to nerf me once more to provoke a response. I lifted my finger weakly, pointed at her, and whispered, Bang. This time I wasn't the one screaming. Her mother cradled her baby's dismembered limbs, frantically clutching an arm, then a leg. I had pointed my finger at the little girl's belly button. The moment the word left my lips, she ruptured like a water balloon, filled with punch and soaking bits of crimson-colored fruit. Johnny Weller's decapitated body filled my vision, the slow red of sunset sliding down the front of his striped shirt. I ran. I can't do this anymore. I got pissed at Laura yesterday and put my finger to her face to tell her off. I didn't even say it. 
I couldn't bring myself to sop my girlfriend's brains off the kitchen floor. I can't do this anymore. All I have to do is put my finger against my temple and say it. At least I'll go out with a bag. Well, you lovelies, I hope you enjoyed the episode. Mates, the crazy army guy had me really surprised. I did not expect that story to go the way it did, and the shred of truth regarding the gypsies sacrificing children. Yikes. The ritual about being invisible to the law was truly freaky, and had an interesting ending to tell about finding the right house to kill the person in. In other words, don't mess up the house you select or it'll be the ritual to summon the law instead. <laughs> Lastly, out with a bang, when children's games become devastatingly realistic, I can only feel awful to live a life with such uncontrollable power. I'd wonder how I'd live with that power. I'd be extremely paranoid, that's for sure. How about you guys and gals? Alright you lovelies, thank you so much for listening. Be sure to swing on by my iTunes page if you get a couple of seconds to spare, as I love hearing from you listeners with ratings and reviews. Every lovely review I get, I read out as my thank you to you. Stay brilliant, which is easy for you lot. And as always, mates, till next we meet.